Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green technology, artificial intelligence, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Walravens. Today, I'm sitting down with Shauna Tellerman, the co-founder and CEO of Modsy, to discuss her entrepreneurial experience and the innovative impact of the world of interior design. Welcome everybody today to our discussion with Shauna Tellerman, the CEO and founder of Modsy, which is a interior design platform that she founded in 2015. Shauna's first company, SimOps, was sold to Autodesk in 2010, and she also spent time as a venture capitalist with Google Ventures. So I'm just thrilled to have you here today, Shauna. Thank you for spending the time discussing this interesting idea of 3D technology, design, and e-commerce with us. Absolutely. Excited to be here. So I wanted to start by asking you about your background. You earned two degrees from Carnegie Mellon. Tell us about what you were studying there as an undergraduate and then as, as a master's student. How did this turn into a startup? Yeah, <laughs> um, certainly was not my plan. Uh, I actually went into school for fine arts, um, which was for me was oil painting. I did large scale figurative oil paintings. And I was that art student, though, maybe the unusual kind that, that really loved math and science as well. And I always had excelled at math and science. And so I, going into Carnegie Mellon, I was trying to find that place where the two things intersected. And to be honest, I spent almost the entire four years looking for that intersection point. I tried all kinds of things and it just wasn't really clicking. And then I took this graduate level course my senior year and it literally changed my whole life, like my whole course, my destiny. <laughs> and it was a building virtual worlds class taught by a now famous professor, Randy Pausch who wrote the last lecture, he unfortunately passed away. Um, at that time, he was famous only kind of in our internal circles for teaching this course and being kind of early leader in human computer interaction design. But the real magic of the course was we combined 3D technologies, virtual reality, and actually the thing that stuck for me was we worked in these interdisciplinary teams with people from different backgrounds and we created something in a really compressed period of time, like two weeks. And then we brought in naive guests, so users that had never seen what we've built before and had they had to experience it. And then we would learn whether they did what we wanted them to do or they did something totally different. Um, and so we did that over and over. And by the end of that, I was like, this is just magic. Like, I have to go do this for the rest of my life. I don't know what this is, but something about art and 3D and design and user experiences, all of it mashed together. And so I applied to the graduate school like days before the deadline, thankfully got in and went into the graduate program. And as you said, I ended up on this like course uh, to starting my first company out of the graduate school, Not also not my plan. So um, tell us about that first company because I was reading about sort of what happened during and after graduate school. You were working on a technology called Hazmat Zone right, which is a, a video game technology that trains first responders for chemical and hazardous materials emergencies. So tell us what you were doing with this technology and how that then morphed into your first startup, SimOps. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a project-based graduate program. And so each semester you typically would do a different project. I ended up in my first year working on this Hazmat Hot Zone project team where we had paired up with the New York Fire Department it was only a few years after 9-11. And so very top of mind was 
hey, the fire departments are the first responders to the scenes of, of anything that's going on, any emergency. And they're very used to dealing with fires, but this new world of terrorism and then this whole world of hazardous materials and biochemicals, this is a whole different beast. And so how are we going to train uh, emergency responders who you know, have gone into this field of work, presumably because sitting in classrooms and listening to PowerPoints and reading books is like not their go-to, they're much more action-oriented. However, as you might guess, many fire firefighters were at that time and probably still are playing video games. So there was this idea, can we take video game technology and create training materials that are really immersive and that might bring things kind of to light and help them simulate what would happen in an emergency scenario without the cost and expense of doing that in the real world. And so we did that in that first semester and there was enough kind of traction that we knew there was a there there, there was something interesting. So the project continued through my second year and I actually ended up continuing with it through my entire second year, which was a bit unusual, but it had its kind of life of its own. And so at the end of my second year, even though I had interned at Electronic Arts on the Sims 2, which was so fun and like they had offered to let me stay and keep working, I made the really tough decision of, hey, I'm gonna take this totally unknown path of sticking with this project to see if I can get it funded, to see if I can get a grant. I don't even know, but I can't imagine putting this on the shelf after a year and a half of work and, you know, fire departments all over the world actually signing up to our mailing list. And so that ended up being about a six month applying for grants, sort of hybrid working for the university. No idea what I was going to do until my professor, the advisor who had been working on that project with me said, you know, maybe you should consider starting a business around this if this could be real software. And he gave me a $10,000 loan and told me like, you know, get a lawyer and uh, set an accountant and set up a bank account. And then that's what I did. And before I knew it, I had a company. And so was, was Carnegie Mellon, was your mentor professor there involved with the start of SimOps? Yes, absolutely. So he was actually one of the co-founders, Jesse Shell. He's still at the, the university and quite entrepreneurial. And then actually another co-founder was a firefighter in the New York Fire Department, um, who was one of the, the trainers that was really kind of envisioning this whole program. And so they didn't actually quit their day jobs, which was a good lesson learned for me about startups. I was the only employee at the very beginning. And boy, we had a tough time getting this business off the ground. But yeah, I just kind of dove in feet first, blindly, maybe naively, <laughs> but uh, probably if I had known more, I wouldn't have done it. So it was actually a good thing, I think. So SimOps, tell us a little more about SimOps, because you, you said that the goal was to democratize 3D game development. So what, what does SimOps do exactly? What was the application that you actually developed the company to do? So yeah, so we started with training and the New York Fire Department and fire departments generally we pretty quickly learned that that's a very tough business to sell into because training budgets are always the ones getting cut for fire departments. And the cycle of setting those budgets is like annual at best, but potentially even longer. So bringing software to market and then getting enough sales in the pipeline to support the company, by the time we had an actual boxed software, believe it or not, ready to go, we were trying to sell it and we realized we're, there's just no way we're going to make enough money here to sustain this business. Meanwhile, we had this crazy opportunity on the West coast to go to a wired conference where we were on the show and the demo floor. And then we were in the, one of the first demo pits for TechCrunch when they were doing a disrupt like conference. And there was so much interest in this idea of a flexible creation system, not just like for hazmat training, but the, we had created this world builder, this ability to kind of set up and create simulations because trainers needed the flexibility to create all kinds of scenarios 
And all of a sudden the light bulbs went off and it was like, aha, the interesting thing here might be larger than just one application, but it might be the ability to create 3D worlds, 3D games. And meanwhile, right at that moment, which sounds crazy today, like everything was moving online instead of software-based and disk-based. And so we were very, very early at that point to say, we're going to make this broader and we're going to put it all in the cloud, which there wasn't even the term the cloud. It was just Amazon was hosting your servers versus having them in the closet in your office. Mm -hmm. And so we moved all of our development tools into this web-based hosted environment and opened it up more broadly. And that really became kind of the, the core of SimOps Studios. So what was undemocratic about the video game development, I guess, environment at the time as you saw it? One of the challenges was that a lot of the game engines were very expensive. So there was professional game engines, but they did cost a lot of money to license. And we felt they were really pretty sophisticated. Like you could only use them if you were a programmer. And yet a lot of people had creative ideas for games and worlds and other things they have training environments they would want to create, but maybe they didn't have kind of deep programming school skills or like a full-fledged team to go create all the 3D assets. So what we were trying to build was something web-based, first of all, so it was really easy to access online. Second of all, it costs nothing to go into our, de our development environment. And then third, we had integrated into it basically like libraries of code that would trigger different actions. So you could kind of get snippets of code to help build your game and 3D assets. So all kinds of 3D assets that you could use to build out game modules. And so that was obviously opening this up to just a much broader audience. So you started the company, your first company, was it 2005? Yeah, and you <laughs> sold it to Autodesk in 2010. And why did you decide to sell it? And was this the exit you had envisioned? Yeah, so a couple of reasons. So I you know, started this company basically out of the gates at graduate school. 24, no work experience. Like this was an adventure, but also insanely stressful starting a business with no experience. So I think there was a part of me five years into it kind of craving like a little bit of normalcy of a structure of a boss of a company that paid the payroll, not me. The biggest factor for, though was in, we had gone through the 2008, 2009 recession. We had gone through fundraising during that time, which I actually managed to successfully fundraise, but it did take a long time. And right at that point where we were fundraising, we had been introduced to Autodesk at the same time, and they were acquiring actually a different company then. We sort of stayed in touch, or they stayed in touch with us over the course of the year. And as we, we got to the next year, as we were sort of heading into 2010, and that summer, I think it was one of our investors actually said, why don't we reping Autodesk and just see where they are? Because we were considering, do we go fundraise? Do we sell the company? Potentially. Really, we were mostly thinking about fundraising. But we opened the conversation with Autodesk and they were like, hey, we are full steam ahead on 3D and cloud. There's really not that many companies or people in the world that know how to build cloud services in 3D. This company we bought in Israel, they kind of took a left turn. They're doing some really cool things, but not what we thought they were originally going to do. So we're still looking for a company to acquire. And so I got to know the team, their vision. I just loved everything about it. I loved the idea of being in a larger structure. I loved the idea of taking what we had started to build and kind of bringing it to market to a much larger audience. And I loved the idea of not having to fundraise <laughs> at that point. <laughs> the stressful part of entrepreneurship, right? Uh, it was one of the wild. most stressful three, parts. Three and a half million dollars we raised total over five years. I think the, the max I raised was one round was one million, but a lot of it was in like 200,000 to 500,000 increments. So it was yeah. just kind of continuous fundraising for five years. Yeah. Yeah. So you sell it. Did you stay at Autodesk and work with the team there for a bit? 
I did. I had an amazing experience yeah. there. I mean, it's a yeah. great company with a lot of history. They had had a female CEO, so it was very equal from a gender perspective. There are a lot of women leaders there and they have a lot of training and development. Like there were just things that I didn't even know to appreciate, but I walked into a scenario where I, I, I literally ended up having, you know, the best manager, best boss that I've ever had, but also that I think is like truly a top-notch manager. And so I, I loved it. At the end of two years, the only reason I left is that I was kind of like itching to use those five years of experience and go do another startup again. Before you did your next startup, you actually went to Google Ventures I as did. a venture capitalist. Why did you make that move? Yeah. So I actually, so I left Autodesk thinking I'm going to spend a bunch of months just playing around with ideas, try this whole startup thing again now with, you know, some breathing room, some time to kind of recollect and then reflect, um, but go at it now with a little more knowledge. And I started coming up with concepts as soon as I left. And then within, I think it was a month or two, Google Ventures pinged me completely out of the blue, was not what I was thinking about. But I was going into my second startup feeling like the one thing I never quite cracked was that fundraising part of it. Like it was mm -hmm. intimidating. It was scary. I didn't understand how investors thought and what, what they really needed out of the relationship. And so when this opportunity to join Google Ventures came along, and I had some ideas, but I didn't have one that at that point that I was like, this is the one I felt like I've got to go do this. It would be amazing to sit on the other side of the table and really understand what goes on behind the scenes and then use that information and that knowledge to really find the next thing that I'm going to do and to also time it such that I really know that I've nailed an idea that is, is going to be a really amazing, scalable, successful business. So what did your time at Google Ventures teach you about the startup world and the dynamics of venture capital? It ended up being a really hard time for me in Google Ventures. So on a few levels, one, I actually had no business background and I had no financial kind of training. And so to go directly into an investment role, you know, they love to bring in entrepreneurs and startup founders, but the truth is that entrepreneurs and startup founders think differently. And so evaluating other people's businesses was hard because on one hand, like looking at models, et cetera, I had to learn all of those skills from the ground up because I had really never looked at another business model outside of my own. And then probably the hardest part for me was this idea of like, I have to say no to everybody. <laughs> and I am such an optimist. Like everybody told me their pitch and their story. And I was like, oh yeah, I can totally imagine how that might work. And so to like retrain my whole brain. Meanwhile, you know, it was, a, it was mostly male and then very quickly all male, the partnership there. And I did feel like I had a different way of thinking about or different topics I was interested in than maybe most of the partnership. And that made it feel like that I was really different, that I, when I came to the table, I was not like the other people around me and that maybe the interest level in what I was interested in was pretty low. So all of those things made it really hard. Now, hard things teach you a lot. And so I do feel like what I learned during that time was that there was a really interesting process that goes on behind the scenes and that partnership dynamic and how the partnership dynamic works is very much how deals get funded and how they don't get funded. Second most important thing I found out was that there is a broad range of companies and that when you start to see the range of successful scaling startups to really early stage companies, those that fail, those that make it, you do start to pick up some parts of what make the success factor there. And so, you know, I gleaned all of those, those things, plus some of the hard won lessons learned around how do I get a voice at the table and, you know, how do I read a financial model and how do I uh, assess a business? And then how do you get good at saying no in a way that feels right for who you are? 
So can you tell us about some of the companies that you invested in during those few years? Yeah. So one of the first ones um, that I like still love this company and you know they've, they've definitely had their ups and downs was a company that I read about in a newspaper, which is crazy to think about. And that was a company called Latote. And so it did like clothing rental. And I just remember reading it and I'm like, oh my God, somebody like me needs this service because I just like, I hate shopping. I hate fashion. I'm like, I have no time. If somebody could just like send me the clothes and then I don't even have to keep them. I can just send them back. And so I love their concept. I like tracked them down in an event and I went in and they were doing a seed round and I was like, can we invest in your seed round? Um, And I got one of the other partners to, to help sponsor it. So that one was really exciting. One of the other, the last ones I did that was also really exciting was uh, jet.com. So kind of at the other end of the spectrum, um, two years in, and as I sort of really learned what a big exit looks like, I had heard that Mark was doing another startup after his big, you know, diapers.com and and, uh, early successes with Amazon. And then he was starting this fascinating company. And so I tracked him down, got a meeting with him and uh, learned more about his business, which was pretty complicated what they were trying to do at Jet. But I felt like if anybody is going to be a challenger in the e-commerce space, like Mark Laurie is going to be that challenger. And if he doesn't succeed, one of these companies needs him. Like they need e-commerce marketplace leaders. And so he will end up being acquired again by Amazon or a Walmart or somebody else in the space. And so of course, a year, I think it was only a year later, a billion dollar exit to Walmart. And so that one was a huge success. That was like, for me, was a great end as I was exiting to feel like I had sort of cracked this game a little bit, but had lots of, well, lots of meanders and lots of failures too along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So then you leave and you have, I guess all along been planning on starting another company and you started Motsi in 2015 and you described Motsi as a sort of a mashup of interior design and e-commerce. So explain how Motsi works. I love Motsi, but explain how it works for those of us who are not familiar with it. And what was the problem you were solving when you started the company? Yeah, I can probably explain them together because it was really, it was my own problem. So my, my husband and I moved into an apartment in San Francisco and it was kind of the first time in my life where I felt like, okay, I really want to make a space that I'm like proud of, that I love to be in. And I just struggled. I immediately out of the gate struggled. So I went to Pinterest thinking like, oh, okay, this is how you do it. You go to Pinterest and you make a board. And so I made this big board on Pinterest. And then I sat there like, okay, now I'm going to figure out what to do. And I looked at my board and I was like, none of the rooms look like my room. <laughs> like, I don't, I, like, don't, I have no idea where to start. The only thing I can take away from this board is that I seem to like neutral colors. <laughs> so then I sat there and I was like, I love flipping through like catalogs, like Pottery Barn catalogs and West Elm, like, you know, Serena and Lily, when they come to my house, I like flip through it and I'm like, oh, I want to live in these spaces. I want to be in that. And I was like, what if you could have that experience, but it was all in your own house. And that was kind of the light bulb moment for me because my background in 3D graphics sort of made me think like, oh, like we can do this. That's, that's possible. I could take pictures of rooms. And so you could just walk around a room in your house. You could take pictures and then we could turn that into a photorealistic 3D model of that room. And then a designer could use our tools and design that room with your style and aesthetic and function and everything. And then we can render it out. And this was all based on my Autodesk experience with architectural visualization. But I knew you could render, especially, you know, back in 2015, a lot of 3D, it still looked really clunky, but I had seen that the future was like photorealistic, beautiful rendering. So I was like, we can render it out. So it feels like this is aspirational, beautiful catalog quality imagery 
but it's your house. Like you're seeing things in your own house. And then all those products that you see in there, they're real products. They're actually things you can buy. And at that moment, that was what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted to exist. And then so my second stream was like, I know how to do this. And probably not that many people know that it's possible to do this and know how to build it and know, know that it could be scalable. And so as that really clicked for me, I felt like, I think there's something here. I quickly wrote out to some friends, some family and said, does anybody else have a problem? Like imagining how things look in their space or trying to, you know, do you have any rooms in your house where you're not happy? And everybody was like, yes, absolutely. Like we're all struggling with this and we have many rooms in our house we're not happy with. And so one of my friends, her email was literally like, help me. Um, and she had sent me photos of one of her rooms. And so I did a little prototype. This is before I quit my job or anything. I did a little prototype to say like, okay, does this idea that's in my head, is this play out? I hired a 3D artist off of Upwork. We modeled it. We designed it. We I picked out the furniture. The design was terrible, which is when we realized we needed designers. But the photorealistic visualization was like, wow. And so at that moment, when I got that back and I saw that image, I remember my husband and I were in Tahoe. We were like walking to the, the mountain and to go skiing. And I, I was like, oh, I came through. And oh, wait, I opened it. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, this is like, this is what I've got to go do. This is going to blow people away. And so that was it. So the service, the platform allows you to take pictures from different angles. It renders this three-dimensional space. And then it actually allows you to choose when I signed up, it, I, you can choose I'm contemporary, I'm traditional, mid-century modern, and you can choose your aesthetic. And then it actually places the furniture, all the decor into that space, correct? And then exactly. Can- and what we've become over time, you know, I really realized the 3D is exciting to me and the 3D is definitely our big selling point. But truthfully, what people need is accessible interior design. Because interior design has been thought of as this really elite service, expensive service, time-consuming service. And so certainly at the point of my life I was in, I was not considering hiring an interior designer. I was considering doing it myself. And there was nothing in between. And so what we found was what the market needed was this idea of like interior design that's accessible, that's affordable, that's for everybody, that's also easy, (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. pain-free, it's technology-driven. And so... That's really the center of what Modsy is. We have real human designers. They use our tools and our technology. They work with our customers, but they're made to be so much more efficient because of all the tools and technology. And then the photorealistic visualization that we pair them with gives the customer that confidence. Like now they see the room, they see the design and they see everything in there and they can very easily say, yes, that's right. No, that's not right. I want to change these things. Maybe I want to try these things. We have tools that the customer can even do that if they choose to, but it's really that true interior design, like an an interior design professional paired with 3D that became the magic sauce of Modsy. We've talked a lot about sort of the interaction between computers, machines, and humans. So how much of what Modsy offers is computer-driven, technology-driven versus the human element? Yeah. So we, uh, since day one, we've automated almost 90% of the process that that is traditional interior design. So it's tremendous amount of automation. We've had a thousand percent efficiency gains. The costs have come down dramatically over five years to the point that it's unbeatable. Like there's nobody else can compete, compete with us in terms of pricing and costs, but there are parts of the human experience that we don't believe computers do well, and maybe they will one day, but we're certainly not close. And that is the communication. So there's a level of trust and there's a level of just human communication that creates like a bond that creates 
trust that creates the sense of being at ease that somebody gets you. So the, the designer has an, an initial call and emails with the customer and we wouldn't ever want to replace that part with the with a computer. The second part is the designer, they get all this input. So we, we automate all the onboarding. We, we find out your style type. You tell us your functional needs. You, you select color ranges, price ranges. There's a lot of information that comes in. All of that gets crunched. We understand sort of what products and what specific parts of our catalog are going to appeal to this customer. But the designer is really good at the creative piece. So when the customer says like, I need a dog bed in the corner and you know, I want to do yoga over here. And then I really like things that are soft, right? Like all of these different elements. And then let's say they have a funky corner and then they've got a fireplace here and a window there. The designer is going to be able to make creative decisions. The tool is able to help assist them with placement to help assist with some of the like detailing of the room. But at the end of the day, kind of that creative vision and the creativity with which humans solve those problems we haven't been able to see a computer compete with that and, and the number of variables that you can take in. And so those are the two places I always say our designers are excellent at these two things. Almost everything else you want to automate because it's noise for them. Like, to be honest, it's the connection with their customer and the creative problem solving designing that is what they love. Sort of all the busy work and the nonsense and the searching for hours to find the perfect thing and building budgets for the customer doing all the onboarding like that's not the fun part and so we can automate all of that yeah so why did you decide to focus on interior design instead of some other industry i mean you were working with you know training virtual training of emergency first responders why interior design yeah so i mean i guess i i do feel like almost all of the best services and companies have a couple of common traits like first of all the founder knows the problem space intimately. And in this case, like it was me, like I am our customer and I knew exactly what I was looking for as a customer, as a person who wasn't hiring an interior designer, was struggling to design, wanted to buy furniture, had a budget to go out and, and spend a couple thousand dollars at least on buying furniture, but I wasn't spending it. It wasn't getting unlocked because I couldn't make a decision. And so I do feel like the first is sort of like an intimate understanding of who your customer is and what the need is in the market. Um, the other two things that, and this is what I used when I was at Google Ventures to sort of evaluate other companies, which is what made me decide to start this, unique domain expertise. And so the, th the 3D background that I brought into this and the team that we've since built, we are a, a very unique team and in a niche field where there's not a lot of expertise. And so that's given us a competitive advantage where we've been able to stay you know, steps ahead of everybody else in the space and really invent the future in this space, but also be able to see around the corner, know what's coming. Um, and then the last one, probably the simplest one, but at the end of the day, it's the difference between starting a successful company and not is, is there a big market opportunity there? Like, are there enough people who will pay money for this thing? Um, and it turns out furniture is a massive opportunity. It's, you know, furniture and decor and accessories is like almost 400 billion. Globally, it's growing to over a trillion over the coming years. So it's a massive, massive industry. And then it was a laggard moving online. So it's been one of the slowest to move online, which means there's gonna be still a number of disruptors who come in, Wayfair being one of the earliest, but really there's not that many more online only care players and furniture, but like every other industry, it's going to move online in a greater percentage. It won't fully move online. And that opens space, that opens, you know, billions of dollars of opportunity for companies to come in and create market share. So tell us a little bit about the challenges, the biggest challenges you faced as an entrepreneur and 
what role has gender played either positively or negatively in your experience as a, a startup founder? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about gender for me is I feel like it was less of an issue when I was younger and as more as I get older. And I've heard a few other people make similar comments. And what I mean by that is I think in you know graduate school and in the game industry, places where I was a female in a space where there was not a lot of females, even being at a heavily computer science school, you felt like you stood out. You felt like it was a benefit to be somebody who was different, not kind of similar to everybody else. Um, and I felt the same way when I started the first, my first company, I felt like, Hey, I'm, you know, this young woman in a game industry where there's not a lot of women and a founder where there's not a lot of female founders. And that to me felt like an advantage. Like people remembered me, you know, I felt unique. I think I didn't have enough context to realize like whether they were taking me seriously or not, whether I was getting funded at the same level. It wasn't really until after, honestly, I left Autodesk and entered into venture capital and then through Modsy that I feel like I've had a more mature lens because I now can see the whole spectrum of who's getting funded, the successful companies, the non-successful companies, the management teams, the venture capitalists themselves, right? And like what they all look like versus what the world looks like. And it just became like striking to me how much I felt like I'm in the minority and then how much there are other people who are even in further minorities than me that are struggling to get funding or struggling to make to break through and enter venture capital and how the industry itself was being impacted in a negative way because that meant we were just missing entire areas and industries and businesses that had potential that could be funded because the lens on it was always the same. And so I, I would say like that was a big turning point for me where I became really passionate about enabling women in both entrepreneurial settings as well as in venture capital. And then really passionate just about what the impact of diversity is. Like I've always believed in it in a team setting, right? Like that was my, why did I go into this whole field was because I felt like, wow, you bring together this like unique set of people with different backgrounds and different ideas. And what we can create is like 10X, what, what any one of us would have built by ourselves. And I feel like it's the same thing in the business world, but we haven't unlocked that yet fully as a collective whole, as a collective industry. And so, so yeah, so I'm quite passionate about it. I feel like it, it certainly became obvious that women, they receive less funding, they start fewer companies. Um, there's less women that make it into senior level venture capital roles and businesses are just being missed or missing out because of it. So Motsi has raised, you have raised over $70 million in venture capital. Tell us about the experience of raising this capital and obviously you're a huge success story. So what advice do you have to impart on other female founders? Yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously the first thing you have to do is have a business that is working and is going to be a real business and is going to make money and, you know, has a competitive advantage, all of the basics. So that's hard work <laughs> not to be, uh, overlooked. I think the second piece is that actually I've had a lot of female backers and especially as I've gotten later stage, which is pretty unusual, the women that have backed us at our series B and our series C, they saw what I saw. Like they were passionate about this space. They saw the problem. They understood the problem. They knew our customer. They just knew this was going to be a big business. And they were fortunately in positions where they were able to convince their partnership. Very early on, we had more male investors at the seed stage but I will say that as it's gotten later stage, it has been more difficult to convince men versus women. You look at financial models, you can see all of the same things in our business versus five other businesses started by men. 
but it's the belief, right? At the end of the day, you're still taking a leap of faith of like, is this the future? Is this going to happen? Is this problem real? And when you, when you understand that problem or you have an intuition about that problem, you're way more likely to take that leap and to convince the rest of your partnership to take that leap. So it's amazing to me that we've raised this much capital. It's like mind blowing to go from three and a half million to over 70 million, like you said, and we will hopefully be raising more in the futures and hopefully have a, you know, be a success story that can empower more women and show that you can back women and make a lot of money and have a hugely successful business endeavor and a hugely successful outcome as a venture capitalist. Because I think those are the kinds of things that drive the change that's required. Yeah. And there's still a lot of change that needs to happen. I think the most recent number I saw was that less than 3% of venture dollars have gone into women-led startups in 2020s. And that number actually went down last year during COVID. So we still have a long way to go as far as putting that money towards women founders. Yes. A Um, lot of work. So let's talk about this past year during COVID. Everyone's working from home, studying from home, sitting around looking at our rooms are empty spaces. And, and I don't think I'm the only one who's done some redecorating, remodeling. How has this past year been for Modsi? What's going on? Yeah. So it has been a, just a wild roller, roller coaster ride, which I'm sure everybody has felt that in their own personal lives. But certainly being in a venture-backed business was a difficult place to be. At the beginning of the pandemic, You know, we, along with really any venture-backed startup who wasn't like selling Clorox wipes, <laughs> where you're like, okay, this business is taking off. Most of the businesses, they either were clearly started tanking immediately, like they were travel startups or something along those lines, or they were just left in the middle and you didn't know, like, is there going to be a recession? What's the impact going to be? And the drive and kind of all of the venture-backed companies in the startup ecosystem is, hey, let's look at prior recessions, what's happened historically, and let's take the most cautious approach because in every prior recession, it's been a pretty big impact on businesses. So we had to pull back on marketing and we had to do a round of layoffs, which was like a horrible way to start the pandemic, which was a scary time and all kinds of horrible things, dealings like for everybody personally at the business. And then to also be faced with like, now we're, we don't know what the future of our business is. Prior recession is 30% reduction in furniture buying. So it seems likely that's going to happen. And so we cut our marketing budget almost to zero in April and May. And we kind of waited for the like the giant drop of customers and then the doom to hit, right? And you know, and the and the whole idea was extend your cash runway, like make it through. Don't don't die in the middle of the pandemic because you ran out of money. So that was the beginning. And then April went by, May went by, we were still waiting for this like giant cliff drop off of all of our customers. And when we got to the end of May and we were like, hey, like nothing's, nothing's changing. (laughs) We've like, you know, maybe dropped a a tiny, tiny bit, but the customers are still coming in every single week. And then they're still buying furniture. And in fact, they bought more furniture in in May than they had even in January, which is usually a strong time. So we, by June, were like, hey, I guess like what happens when you lock people in their homes (laughs) now obvious, but wasn't obvious then is they start doing home projects and everybody has more time. And all of a sudden they're staring at their four walls and they hate everything and they need to make an office space. And All of this kind of energy went into home, which now, again, sounds so obvious, but it wasn't then. And so as we hit June, sort of the gloom started to lift a little bit. We thankfully got to rehire and or, you know, people that we were kind of ramping down over a longer period, we got to keep them. And 
you know, we still had to stay lean because we wanted to last through this thing, which I had been wisely advised was going to be very long, not fast, even though everybody kept saying, June, we're going to be back in the offices. And my wise advisor said at least a year. And so, you know, at that point, we sort of carefully tiptoed back into marketing spend. And we still use this weird once in a lifetime opportunity where growth wasn't the main goal for the business to just invest in foundation, to look at things that were totally unsexy behind the scenes, foundational work, like redoing our designer model, like building a messenger service. We did all of this foundational work and it's really paid off because as we entered back into the fall and we said, okay, clearly not only are we not in a business that's suffering, we are in a beneficial business during the pandemic and something that's honestly distracting to people and keeping them feeling cheery during a time that's been so stressful, we get to be the kind of like bright light in their days. And we started investing back into our marketing in Q3, Q4, and early into Q1. And we've just started this year in such a healthier position as a business. Our business economics have been, never been as strong. We rebuilt our marketing models, and then we had all these foundational systems that we address so we're in a better position to scale. So we kind of had this tale of two stories in our pandemic experience, but certainly the, the second half of it has been a lot brighter for us. So what can we expect to see in the next year, let's say one year, three year, five years with Modsi? Expansion. <laughs> I think first and foremost, our goal is brand awareness. We still feel like the industry, the opportunity to use an online design service, and certainly the brand name Modsi you know, has small penetration in our addressable market. And so the topmost goal for us is just general brand awareness and growth. Within that, there's more automation, there's more technology that, that can enable better designs, faster designs, better features for our customers. And then sort of as we layer on top of that, there's expansion areas. So we just opened up this renovation beta service. So it's in kind of an early pilot beta, uh, but we've had great demand for something that's not even being marketed at the moment. We have this had this steady stream of customers coming in who want to do kitchen remodels, bathroom remodels, whole floor and whole house remodels, because again, this, the biggest challenge is imagining how all those different things you're choosing look together and you can work with an architect and a contractor and get a good floor plan, but you're like, but what is this going to look like? And I don't know which bath tile and which floor type and which ceiling fixture should I choose? I have no idea. And how do I narrow this down? So our designers help the, the customer with that process. So that's, that's going really well. I can, you can expect to see that, that launch. And then as we sort of look out three years, five years, we really imagine that Mozzi becomes this household name synonymous with interior design, because there really isn't a brand yet that you associate with interior design in the world. And so we feel like that is just such a huge opportunity to become that brand that you go to because you, you want help in designing your home and you trust that we're going to give you great products and great design services and great design ideas and all of the different assortments in just one place that's going to be really easy for you to find what you want and transact on what you want. So Shauna, thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center.
If you enjoyed today's conversation with Shauna as much as I did, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Be sure to join us next week to hear my conversation with Kathleen Egan, the co-founder and CEO of Ecomedes. We will be discussing the incredible strides her company is making in reducing costs, energy usage, health risks, and environmental impact for commercial buildings. <laughs>